welcome back to the Making Things Worth podcast, where we discuss all things digital transformation and leadership in the workplace. I'm your host, Duncan Pryor, and I help organizations simplify and transform through the use of technology. And today we're joined by Deborah Webster, who works with business leaders, boards, investors to build better companies for a better future. And we'll be talking about that today. Uh, welcome, Deborah. Hi, Duncan. Thanks for having me here. Yes. And then since we last spoke, um, you, you told me you were writing a, a book. And I just, I'm intrigued as to how that's going. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, thanks for the question. Um, it has a life of its own. I'm obsessed about upgrading humanity because we, we upgrade our technology all the time. And I've been trying to figure out this puzzle of humans for a while. And my mom yeah. used to say something really cool. She used to say, when I criticize you, I don't criticize you. I criticize your behavior because you're better than your behavior. And for me, it's the distinction between people and our behavior and humanity and our potential. And so the book explores this. And I go through the journey of the virtues and the vices through lots of different approaches. So from Aristotle and Kant to Ubuntu. So it's, um, it's interesting and it provides boards and decision makers with a framework to help make better, more responsible, more ethical decisions in a fun way, I hope. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm glad to hear it's going well and I can't wait for it to come out because um, I think it's going to be incredibly valuable. And as you say, that's the title of, this, of today's show, uh, Upgrading Humanity. And as so, as so often are on this podcast, even though we're we tend to end up talking about technology, we kind of end up talking about people. And um, you've made this very nice sort of distinction, uh, which is, which we can talk about as well, between humans and people, which I really, I really like. I'd never heard that before. Um, but I just wanted to ask you, it's quite good to maybe uh, level set, as it were, as they say in, at the start. Why, from your point of view, do we need to upgrade humanity? Well, we're better than our behavior, right? So if we look at all the challenges that we face in the world, I believe all the solutions exist, but the issue is the resistance of human beings. And if you break it down to the vices, it's greed, it's fear, it's looking at our neighbor and wanting to, be, to do better than them, it's sloth, lazy, lazy thinking, uh, lazy actions. So I just think we can do better. And it's you know, it's fascinating because with this, with the rise of AI and everyone is now familiar, like more aware of AI, for me, it's a really interesting way to, you know, if everyone's afraid that AI is going to replace humans and humanity, it's like, okay, well, it begs the question, what is it to be human? What is the purpose of our journey on this planet? So I look a lot at work, for instance, I have a track record in executive search and I look a lot at leadership and this distinction between jobs careers and meaningful work. So jobs yep. for me means just on board, right? It's where you're, you're doing something by force and it's kind of mirrors the lack of engagement that some, some data um, has come out uh, that shows what's happening in the workplace. The second one is careers. So I'm a Webster, right? So I, I play a lot with words and a Webster, if you look up as a, if you look up the word career in the dictionary, you'll see that you're going super, super fast. So there's a bend in the corner, you're likely going to go flying off the edge of the cliff, which yep. probably explains career burnout. But the third is meaningful work and meaningful work is fascinating. And it's kind of links to the humanity piece as opposed to the people piece. So work isn't just a means to get a paycheck. It's a means to figure out what you're brilliant at, how you add value. It's the spirit that you bring to the workplace. 
Um, and then that makes you look at companies. You know, companies, a lot of companies behave like they own people. They don't. Yep. The most successful companies are platforms that enable people to fulfill their potential. So there's a lot of talk, for instance, about the next generation looking for more companies that are aligned with, with their values. Well, I push back a little bit on that because at the end of the day, it comes back to our vices, which is, so I'll give you an example. Um, I was part of a, a working group. There were academics, there were students, and there were people from business. And the students, so next generation, are criticizing, for instance, the banks for bad behaviors and for investing in companies that cause harm. I was like, okay, let me ask you a question. Let's just imagine there are two, you had two job offers. One is with a regular investment bank. They're invest across, across sectors, negative impact or positive impact. And they're, get, they're offering you $120,000 a year versus a pure investment, impact investment bank that's offering you $100,000 a year. Which would you choose? Without missing a beat, they would say, well, obviously the $120,000 because we have our student loans. So we're, we can't criticize the outside world if we ourselves aren't willing to hold ourselves to the same values and principles that we expect others to abide by. Um, yeah, I could go on about this for a while, so you're better, you better stop me. <laughs> the whole point is, as you say, you, you, um, you were talk when we're talking about a job and meaningful work as two separate things, it almost just proves the point right there. And it's, it's similar to your point um, where you talk about there's this term called responsible leadership, and you think, well, there's no reason, there's no reason. Really. And you see, you think, oh, responsible leadership. Oh, yes, I understand what that is. But then you think, well, why, why are we even using two words there when one should do the job? Exactly, exactly. Which is why I create this distinction, sadly, between leaders and people in positions of power. Yeah. It's and when we look at the world around us, yes, we have a climate crisis and a bunch of other crises, but at the at the base of it. It's a leadership crisis. We don't have the pe we don't have people in positions of influence and power with the kahunas to make the tough decisions. Juncker said it very well, um, and he said, "We know what we need to do. We just don't know how to do it and get reelected." Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, you you. It's a bit in, in the world of uh, consulting that, that that I'm in. If you 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 if you want to you want to get the work and get the projects and, and and do them successfully and you um it's it's similar to getting re-elected you want to make sure that you're they continue to be engaged and picking up uh getting paid you know because we all, we've all got bills to pay yeah so i get that so part of that process is through we at least need to challenge companies to be a better version of themselves so it means we need to have the courage to ask the difficult questions and the challenging questions, even if it means we potentially lose the client. But if the client is worth it, because there's, because it's a domino effect, right? Yeah. So where we invest our time and energy fuels the future. It's if we're criticizing, look, and, and the fact of the matter is this, right? The majority of us and the majority of companies on this planet cause negative impact. Yeah. Right? So we should be smart about it. We should, we should acknowledge that. We should own it. And then proactively seek out where we're causing harm. Because if we're causing harm, and it's part of, I had a great conversation with someone yesterday who was talking about vectors of trajectory and vectors of impact. And if every single company chose three areas where their, businesses practice, where their business practices have negative impact and they're critical to their 
business practices, then they proactively innovate around it, right? And the likelihood is if they're causing negative impact, someone else is as well. And so this is where collaboration comes into play. But this also requires us to upgrade our humanity because we're not typically very, very good at collaborating, right? It's lean more towards competition instead of collaboration. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I do, going back to your point about the 120K versus the 100K, I think that um, one of the unfortunate consequences of, of, of course, called irresponsible leadership is actually then, the, for whatever reason, that the people under them actually implement the the wrong thing, even with even more sort of zealotry than was initially thought of by the leaders in the first place. And that's something that, say, someone like myself can reflect upon because that's we we can all we've all got a role to play here. It's not just about sort of blaming the top the people at the top. Absolutely. I mean, that's really well demonstrated, for instance, when it comes to startups who then massively scale. Uh, when you look at, you know, the original vision and purpose that the founder had in mind versus where they ended up, it's like, how did you get that mission creep? And there are a few factors that I've identified. First is the people that you surround yourself with, but also the team at that, and especially in early stage, part of that team is actually the investors you have on board, because sometimes... Desperate to raise money, founders give in to a lot of the stuff that they first set out to do and to accomplish. Yes. Um, so you really have to have partners on board, including investors, who are aligned to your vision and mission. But we don't, but we don't set up the game to bring out people's truth and bring out people's best. You know, if you look at the startup scene, you've got this pitching thing instead of. You know, let's have a conversation around the table. Tell us where you're really at and tell us where you're stuck so that we can see if we're in a position to not only fund that, but solve it, right? So you roll up your sleeves and you're part of the solution instead of this crazy kind of ego trip. It's mad. Yep. Yeah, and I think that brings us nicely on to um, your favorite book, if you don't mind, because I saw an interview with you recently where you very, very quickly picked it as your Desert Island Disc book, which is The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. And um, many thanks to the recommendation. I'm reading it at the moment. And um, could you just explain for the listeners what the book is about if they haven't indeed already read it? Um, well, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it to everyone, especially parents who are raising kids in the digital age. So it goes into how every click, like, share is tracked. And she talks a lot about shadow data. Um, and so it's the insight. So it's not that there's a lot of noise around data, but what's more powerful is the insights of the data and how those insights can then be used to, for want of a better word, manipulate our behaviors. Yeah. What's fascinating for me, so I read that in conjunction with another book that I love. And I think the two of them go very well together if you can, if you can connect the dots. And that's um, AI superpowers. And it's written by a Chinese gentleman who used to work with Google China. So he understands the Silicon Valley mindset and he understands the, the Chinese innovator mindset. And it's mind-blowing. And in the beginning of this book, he talks about how when AlphaGo was playing against the world champion, um, the world champion of Go and AlphaGo won, how the audience had a tear in their eye and how this was China's Sputnik moment in the AI race. So when you combine Shoshana's insights with the power and impact, potential impact of AI, it's 
fascinating. And the, the other piece I think about is, so we have these really powerful tools at our disposal, which we have weaponized towards the regular Joe and Jane blogs, right? But surely would be better using that same technology to bring transparency and nudges to companies because companies ultimately shape the world we live in. You know, we're using this tech because of a company. It's, it's fascinating. It's really, really interesting. And also then for me personally, I love the fact that she describes Sheryl Sandberg as the typhoid Mary of surveillance capitalism. I mean, when you look at, you know, what happened with um, Facebook back then, which is now Meta and the Cambridge Analytica debacle, um, I was doing talks around different universities at the time. And we say how the next gen are tech savvy. And I'm giving them all these examples. Number one, Cambridge Analytica, they had no clue it was happening, which for me is mind boggling. But there again, not, you know, at that age, you don't read the news, but it does say kind of, it does beg to question of what's in their feeds. And, you know, if they're looking at, you know, Meta's feeds, or they're not exactly likely going to kind of put their own, put their own news on there, but it's, it's really interesting. So there's this, um, and then there's cookies, you know, I have, but so in Shoshana's book, she um, references some research that it says, if the average person were to read all the privacy policies and terms and conditions of every website and app we were to use, do you know how many days it would take? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 63. So much for technology making us more efficient. And it's fascinating because it goes into you know, the decisions and the discussion, the discussions and the decisions that drove, you know, how to frame the privacy policies. Um, I became obsessed about this. I've been obsessed about data for a while. Um, but this particular, the, the piece of surveillance tech, tech um, I became obsessed with before I read Shoshana's book. So Shoshana's book for me was a bit of a, I'm not insane um, kind of text for me. I was um, using, I downloaded an app. I just wanted to measure my steps, right? So nothing major, steps, which every, which a lot of people do. But I insisted on reading these privacy policies because I was going through this, pro pro this process of, I wouldn't use any website or app unless I read the privacy policy terms and conditions. You become very loyal to a few apps and websites very, very quickly. So I'm reading this app. So there's 19 pages of the privacy policies. And the first page, they make reference to the data they're collecting. This is an app that just measures steps. Yeah, yeah. Height, your weight, your location, da, 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 and your fingerprint. Why do you need my fingerprint? On page 19, you give them permission to share that data in a number of circumstances, including if, for instance, there's a merger and acquisition. Now, there has been research that shows that you can actually if you have a non-identifiable data, you can actually restitch it together to be able to identify the person. So let's fast forward in time and imagine there's a company that wants to be the world's largest security company. So what do you do? You acquire companies that have these pockets of data and you start to stitch it is one potential future, right? Um, so you've got fingerprint here. You've got a voice print here. You've got a palm here. Why do I say palm? Because there are these supposed games on platforms like Facebook where, you know, you give them your palm in order to tell you what kind of person you are, but no one bothers to read what you're actually, what data you're actually handing over 
yeah. and who you're giving them access to. But that is a very, I'm even not going to show you my pump because it's, if you take a screenshot of it, like it's this very personal data that can be yeah. used for security purposes. It's, we're naive when it comes to this. It's petrifying actually. Yeah, I mean, certainly, yeah, reading the book, I said my 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 own sort of personal takeaway is almost completely outside of the actual content of the book. Is I just feel like a sort of tech zombie, as the term you've used before, and I felt like it myself. I thought I'm just bl blindly sort of following all this stuff, clicking accept, downloading cookies, and and uh, and you could say, well, you know, it's it's uh, I'm using Maps to get to a local restaurant this evening, and oh, that's fantastic. But the, 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 the issue that Shoshana raises, I think that you're raising as well, is it's, you're, you're starting to move away from what it is uh, to, to be human. It's, you, you are becoming a zombie um, because then everything will be directed towards you. To, um, and suddenly, the, the, being a human is, is being able to kind of walk, walk around in the street and meet friends and do human things. And, and this, is, this is taking us away from that. And so... It is quite terrifying. It's not just a sort of a, I don't know, shocking. This is it's really happening. I I would I would love to sit with some neuroscientists and map if um, map the impact of technology on our cognition. So, for instance, yeah, there was a time when we would memorize phone numbers. Do you know a phone number? Yeah. No. No. That there was a time we could do mental arithmetic. Yeah. Who do you know? And, and this is the thing. So when you look at the vices, that's sloth, it's laziness. Yeah. Um, you know, people don't care about, they don't think about this stuff because they care about convenience. Names as well. You, you can remember, say, a, a film movie, but you can't yeah. remember the actress when, you know, and it's the, the, it could be Tom Cruise and you can't even remember. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was Tom Cruise. I forgot, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, something. It's... It's really, people don't realize how many of our decisions are actually influenced by algorithms. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much every single one. So even for instance, if this came up in someone's feed and they didn't proactively look for it, that was, a, that's an algorithm pushing it towards them. It's fascinating. But this is, but this is good content, God bless. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're the good guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I think that that's, um uh hopefully that's given this um that, that sort of baseline so this is where we are and um we, we're at this uh and the reason why it's important is in the past there have been these moments in in humanity where that have usually um resulted in more uh destruction of the planet but they've, they've evolved we've evolved through them but now we're at this point uh as uh shoshana zubov talks about where we've got this uh, technology take us away from being human and then we've also got the climate crisis as well so we're, we're we're no longer at a point where it'll just work itself out and it's just one of those things and you know the next generation blah 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 um there, there's actually a, a real a real absence of that bit in the middle between organizations and people and uh some don't do something pretty drastic um it's not going to end well whereas in the past you say you know the romans and that ended and the next thing started and you can sort of all these sort of platitudes but we're not there now absolutely it's um you know and there's a lot of events and a lot of webinars where we're passing ourselves on the back as to how well we're doing 
But every single day, I see this image of the Titanic heading towards an iceberg. Of course, with climate change, it's it's melted. So um, we're looking at a mountain in the ocean. And um, the rudder is too small. And we are we're not course correcting in time. And this, you know, saying that the next generation is going to solve it, I think is um, appalling behavior. It is irresponsible. It's kicking the can um, down the road. Um, and it's going to be even harder for them to to course correct. So no, yeah. to all of us. It's, um, you know, we say we're the smartest species on the planet. I don't know. I think we have the potential of being the smartest species on the planet. But I don't know how smart we are if we insist on polluting our waters and our air um, for the name of profit when, you know, we can do better. Yeah, yeah. Better. And, and this is what I find inspiring about technology with humanity because technology could help bring the best out of us, right? If we design it wisely and if we use it wisely, I'm not seeing a lot of that right now, which is why I get not panicked, but a little bit distressed. Yes, but let, let, let's then talk, now we've, we've established where we are as it were, in, uh, in, um, uh, the next thing is then the work that you do. So could you talk a little bit about um, what you do and how you do it and the way you go about because we're uh, at this point in time we're all still here so we're, we're yes yourself myself everyone else we're out there doing our best so what is it could you talk a bit about your work and and how you do work with organizations and possibly some successes sure um so I work with organizations in a, in a number of different ways. So I made reference to, I do some work in executive search, um, mainly focused in Saudi Arabia. And the reason Saudi Arabia is multifold. Um, number one, I was raised in Saudi Arabia. So my father used to work with Aramco. Um, right. so when people talk about switching off oil companies overnight, I'm just like, well, it's not quite that simple because the impact and the consequences, first on a global level, but also on all those individuals and all those families and what happens to a country. So it's not, we don't live in a world of zeros and ones. So the work I do um, in search is boards and C-suite and identifying not only brilliant people, but people of character, competence, and commitment. Those three things really matter. But the, the challenge is actually not finding amazing people. It's actually finding great companies that deserve great people. And this is a global problem because there's a lot of companies out there that espouse wonderful values and lovely missions, but actually they don't, they don't live up to what they say, right? Talk about greenwashing. Yeah. Um, so that's one piece. The other one is um, we're just about to launch a platform to help accelerate the impact of CSOs, Chief Sustainability Officers. Now, this matters because for, for a number of reasons. Number one, um, a couple of years ago was COP during in, at Glasgow. Um, the narrative was such that I had like a bit of a panic attack where it's like, okay, there's going to be an uptick for the demand of ESG professionals and CSOs. But the problem is they're actually going to be burning their time. And in my books, burning time, time is in like a non-renewable resource. So if you are investing your time in a company that has zero appetite to do anything well that's wrong so i like looking at you know helping people discern if a company is worth their time and talent and also cso's are in this really odd 
roles. Some of them are very, very senior. They know how to navigate the politics of a, of, of a company. Uh, others are very, very junior. So they're a bit clueless as to the complexity of, of, a, of an organization. And the fact of the matter is, unless the mandate comes from the board and the board is and the board is on board, um, you're actually going to have very, very little impact. So there's a lot of analysis in it. Um, then I collaborate with a bunch of CSOs who know their stuff and have solutions and helping them actually drive those solutions because also having, having greater backing. Um, and then I give a lot of talks um, and a lot of board discussions um, in order to especially with um, family businesses. So family businesses are being disrupted. They are worried about succession to the next generation. Um, one of the key factors in successful succession is um, a family philosophy and alignment of the values. So it's a really, so being able to have a conversation where all the families are on board and you are discussing what a potential future could look like you then discern what matters to you. You actually shape your investment principles. And it's really cool because it's, it turns theory into practice. Um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of stuff I get involved with. Um, and then it's, it's the one-to-one -one conversations where you're really, you know, where you hold the line. So I'll give you an example. There was this board member and he worked, um, he was on the board of a telecoms company in sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, they were really, really good at identifying local talents, grooming them, growing them within the company. And he's like, I don't know what to do because this guy who he personally had groomed has been caught taking money out of the company, but paying it back before the next accounting cycle. Now, for those who have only ever lived and worked in the West, the automatic reaction would be like, we should fire him. But I've done a lot of work in emerging markets in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was like, well, hold on a second. I have a hunch. It's like, what do you mean you have a hunch? He was expecting me to be irate. I was like, well, I have a feeling that one, one possible um, reality is that you have built such an amazing trusted brand in the community that anyone from the local community who's working with the company has become a modern day elder with all the responsibilities that come with that. I said, so these are the questions we need to ask in order to figure out what next. So he went to find out what the money was used for. And sure enough, it was for school books, uniforms, things like this. So they were really cool. They actually created a CSR budget. Um, so it was a, a loan facility for the staff that they could say, okay, this is what it's for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it was local... Um, culture with global corporate governance and having like this beautiful marriage between the two. Then the product development people got involved and they created a product around this and they've made millions from this. So going right. from, and this is where the upgrading humanity also kind of, that's a great example of it because it's about don't judge, seek to understand. And once yeah. you understand, then you make your decision from there. We have a lot of knee jerk reactions happening in this world, but if we just take a beat and seek to understand I think we'll find some really interesting insights and then put our innovative brains on and come up with solutions. Yeah. So you've got this, you've got that, and you've got this way that you do that, where you can, you can step through it. You're not just, yes, as you say, just um, judging, steaming in there and just sort of judging what's going on and you're applying your own uh, values to the right and wrong to these, to whoever it is. You, you, yeah. you've got a way of actually uh, stepping through it to, to, so you can then articulate that with your clients as well. To say, well, actually, uh, if I, well, I'll just take you through this, 
rather than it just being, uh, like you say, some sort of binary outcome. Yeah, absolutely. You know, everyone has different values. Every single company has different principles and we need to find out what those are and then make sure that our practices are in alignment with that. And if they're not, then so, for instance, there was this uh, one company I was advising and they were an investment company um, focused on Africa, triple bottom line. And we went through this whole process and the end, I was like, okay, so let's look at some of your investments. It's like, but you're not a finance person. I'm like, no, but I know BS when I see it. It's like, so we're looking at, and he mentioned a, a particular category of food. I was like, well, is it good for the African body type? It's not up to me to have the answers. It's not up to me to tell you whether that's a yay or an A. There's data and, and, and scientists that can tell you this, right? And he's like, no, but it makes good money. I was like, so say you're about money, but if you say you're triple bottom line, you need to have a framework in order to help you make decisions along those principles. But otherwise, if all you care about is profit, cool, say so. Yes, then it becomes clear. Yeah, that I like your example uh, of the case you worked with a water company as well, where they wanted to say, oh, we'll just donate 10% of our water to an Africa. And, and they think, well, there's a, and I guess, you know, you can sympathize it. The, the decision made, they're trying to do the right thing, but it's so disconnected from everyone else. It actually, it will actually do more harm than good. I thought it was a great story. Tell us a little bit about that. It was an innovation challenge. And this was one company that was um, being considered to be in the lineup. So they were bottling water and they were selling it. And 10% of the top line was going to water projects in Africa. So I come along and I've done a lot of work in, on, on water projects in Africa and I asked them, okay, so what's the water source? How sustainable is the water source? What's the quality of the water? Uh, what's the, what is the um, access to water for the local community? Is this going to impact the cost of water for the local community? Um, you're bottling this water in plastic. What are you doing to mitigate that? You're shipping this water. What are you doing to mitigate that? And how are you identifying the partners to do the water process? Anyway, so there's a whole list of questions. And they looked yeah. and they said, well, that's a lot of work. I said, like, but that's the game. So we can't be lazy. That's loss. We have to be curious and we have to be courageous. And it's, look, they're very, very, these are not easy challenges to tackle. No. We don't have to tackle them alone. So if we find aligned partners with the, the same level of commitment, right? Because there's a lot of people that say stuff, but they're not committed. So there's no commitment. There's no point because you're going to be burning your time. So next. So people have got to become very, very, very discerning into figuring out who's in and who's out. Yes. So let's now move on. Uh, every uh, episode of the podcast, we, ha we have a little deviation off into the world of AI. And uh, this one's going to be so different. But I think what is different about this time round is I thought you made this fantastic point about the fact that there's a chance that uh, there's all this all the talk about AI, but there's a there's a chance that AI could end up being nicer to humans than than humans are to humans. And I think that's a great way to kick off the AI conversation. So, AI per se doesn't worry me. It's the humans behind it that worry me. Yeah, you know, we could create AI to do a whole bunch of different things, but we need to be able to temper ourselves. Yes, I can create that, but should I? What are the consequences? Um, there's a great, um, a Coursera junkie and there's this great pro, um, there's a great course on there called the moralities of everyday life that I really recommend to the, to the listeners. Yep. And, and the professor said the difference between mother nature 
and humanity is that Mother Nature knows how to temper herself. And there's this great image of two lobsters, one created by Mother Nature with the size of the, with the claws that are in balance with the lobster's weight, and the other is a lobster with nuclear weapons. You know, Oppenheimer is a phenomenal movie that's so relevant, I think, for the challenges and the decisions that we have to make today. Because everyone, because we're repeating the same pattern. It is the same play on a different stage, but it's the same pattern. And we're driven by, you know, a race. You know, let's all get out there and develop our own AI as quickly as possible. So this thing about AI being kinder to humans than humans are to humans. So there's a number of different possible realities, right? And the reality that's going to come to fruition is very much based on the decisions and actions we make today. Because every single time we make a decision, we set a course. Now, we all need to decide what the purpose of AI is. I am of the camp that it's there to serve humanity. It is there to make our life better. Not make us zombies, but actually improve our life. So for instance, what we buy, it also impacts the trajectory, right? So let's just say, for instance, imagine there's this AI tool where I could program it based on what matters to me. And then you program it based on what matters to you. And this thing goes out to find the products and services that are in alignment with that. And then I have a choice as to from the selection, which I'm going to choose. And then there's a balance sheet based on, okay, so this is what you say you stand for. Based on your purchases, this is actually what you are. It's, but it's not making decisions for you. It's creating, it's providing you with, it's doing the legwork for you in order to give you the options. Because one of the sad realities is people are time poor and they're stressed and they don't have time to figure out what is the least negative. So I call this the banana problem. So imagine you're in a supermarket, okay? And there's two bunches of bananas. One, so I'm I'm talking from, from Dubai at the moment. So imagine there's one that's produced in Brazil, it's wrapped in plastic, it's organically grown, and it's shipped to Dubai. Then there's another one, another bunch, which is locally grown, non-organic, and not wrapped in plastic. Well, good Lord. Like, I don't want to have a negative impact, but which one is the better choice? Because one's either poisoning me or poisoning the planet. So either way, we're kind of like <laughs> in trouble. But it's, wouldn't it be interesting to have a tool that would help us navigate all the noise and all the BS, which is fed to us on a day-to-day -day basis? Our decisions very much are based on other platforms, algorithms, and what they choose to push to us. Imagine if we had a tool that superimposes all of that, and I can say, okay, Give me th things that are this piece, this piece, this piece, and this piece. Look at our LinkedIn feeds. I have a whole bunch of contacts in my LinkedIn portfolio, so to speak. And I always get the same, like the news from a handful of them. Imagine if there was a tool that could program my feed based on, okay, I want a cross section of people based on age, based on sector, based on geography. Wow, that's rich content. And that avoids us having the echo chamber. It's just, I think we can do better. And I think we just also have to make sure that we're not sub subcontracting our decision-making to AI or an algorithm. It's the decision has got to lie with us, but we also have to be aware of our biases. It's, it, it's a fascinating space. Like it, it's really, 
it's really interesting. I mean, look at, for instance, recruiting and the number of biases in place in recruiting. You know, yes, there's a lot of tools out there that say they're removing biases, but then the danger with that is that people see a chart and they just subcontract their decision to what the chart says. So that's that's incorrect as well. So yeah, I think the virtues and the vices, there's some really interesting potential tools that could come up using yeah. that. I'm sort of hoping that the, that the 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 idea, as you touched on previously, of using principles um, and, and really abiding by those principles, that that, that could be a, an, act, an outcome, how likely that is. Because if you did have some sort of AI tool, say, in a business that did something, you at least need to have had put some principles in place to, to agree whether or not you're going to abide by what it tells you to do, uh, assuming it comes up with an instruction and there's five of you in the room, at the moment you probably wouldn't agree as a group of five of you whether you agreed with it, with what it said or not. But so you would you would uh, you might not have thought of having a more principle based conversation uh, before this this thing turned up sitting on the, there on the desk. But now maybe you will in in the future because to establishing uh, we try and do this in the world of technology is if you can establish some principles. Uh, it makes a big difference to uh, guiding you through things because you're not then getting into arguments about um, should we do this or that. And, you know, from a PR perspective, it's a phenomenal way of being in a position to respond in a timely, responsible way instead of because, I mean, and there's also a really interesting case that um, that just came to my attention about Elon, a book uh, written about Elon Musk and how he switched, how he told um, his team to switch off Starlink when there was a strike. And he couldn't quite fathom how he got into war. It's like, but surely you would have thought about all these things before you actually made that decision. And this is the thing, I think there's, we live in a, we live in a world where there's leadership by hashtag. This is a disaster, you know? Principles-based leadership is far wiser, it's far more solid. It in, you, we might not like certain people's decisions, but at least if there's rationale behind them and then the courage to also course correct when they realize they've done wrong. I mean, there was this phenomenal minister I came across recently and he had come up with this policy and then he realized in very, very quick time that actually there were unintended consequences of the policy. He owned it and said, it was my policy. Yeah. It's not brilliant. I'm course correcting. Wow. Wow, we need more politicians like that. You know, because yeah. we we refer to these ministers as the honourable minister. I'm not seeing much honour amongst them, to be honest. But hey, <laughs> yeah, that's another whole conversation for another day potentially. <laughs> yes, for sure. Let's not open Pandora's box on that one. No, but I mean, what so for um, business and technology consultants like myself, and when we're trying not not in the AI world, but in just generally, there's there's still this. Um, we're still dealing with uh, the new things that are coming out all the time, but then there's all companies are faced with lots and lots of problems, that are people and process rather than rather than technology. And so you, you you can end up adding layer upon layer of more and more technology. And um, what would your advice be to say someone like myself trying to navigate through that uh, in the more sort of not at the AI level, but the sort of next level down for one of a term, just dealing with a company's business technology platform i feel sorry for people and companies oftentimes because they're they're kind of they're often stuck between the devil and the deep blue sea they know what they should do 
Um, but if they do that, they're either going to miss the promotion or it's not an alignment how they're going to get their bonuses. Yeah. So understanding what really matters to them, um, both personally and from a company perspective and evening those out kind of, there's a horrible expression. I've never understood it. Squaring the circle on that. Um, but but it's quite apt actually in there. Yeah, it is. Yeah, at the end of the day. Yeah. Because we need to we need to acknowledge both, and then operate from that. So, you know, the most important thing is to create the environment where people are truthful. Right. And then to create an environment where you're truly trusted, and that they trust that you are giving advice for their betterment and the company's betterment, et cetera. So it's, and there's a way of questioning, of questioning, and there's a way of giving advice. Um, apparently I have a bit of an advantage. I have, I have an expressive face. And so um, when there's something that people, I mean, they're not going to like to hear, but they need to hear, they kind of, they see it on my face. It's like, no, so there's something we don't want to hear. It's like, yep. So then I ask them permission and then they give me the right. to tell them. So it's, and also bringing humor to it, you know, it's, um, but at the end of the day, we're dealing with people and people have lots of different pressures and lots of different stresses. You know, if the promote, if a, if the, if a person's up for promotion and implementing ABC within set period of time matters, it's like, okay, well that that's important. Um, this is what you might not be aware of. Um, and then trying to navigate that as well. So it's, yeah, but compassion, I think, really, you know, matters. Compassion, understanding, um, and giving space for people to be themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of the professionals we tell them to be. Yes, yeah, and I remember for myself, I think, you know, we're, there's there's a, a way that you get sort of programmed to, in the world of work, and um, it's it, it's about, about rewiring to some extent because we're we're kind of riding this sort of freight train if you like and um it's probably time to just start thinking slightly differently about these things and it involves reprogramming yourself um because it goes right back to the way you're taught at school and then soon your professional career and you've got to be sort of positive you've got to be this you've got to be that and there's a whole uh, but it doesn't necessarily all those sort of all that experience you require doesn't necessarily lend yourself to being in these situations in the world of work where we are now yeah you're you're so right it's um i like the way you you say how we've been programmed i refer to this a lot as the personal algorithm we're all running inner algorithms based on yep. um our upbringing um things you were told as kids uh situations and how we reacted to them and 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 the code that we instilled within ourselves um there's this process actually I, I take um, some clients through of if they don't like the world they're seeing around them for themselves and their decisions, we go back into their code and we reprogram their code um, because it's being able to review your lifeline in a conscious and conscientious way. It's really cool. So then you're no longer running on autopilot. You're more yep. conscious and deliberate. It's fascinating. Humans are so interesting. It's like, you know, when you look at our brain, we're only using a tiny percent of it. Yes. Yeah. 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 We're certainly, as we go through this, we're certainly raising the bar for your book, Deborah. It's going, 
<laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, um, I think that's probably a good place uh, to, to, to stop now. There's so much to talk about, but I really want to say uh, many, many thanks for, for joining us today. And what's the best way that um, listeners can get in touch with you? Uh, LinkedIn is always great. Um, it's also where I cause a lot of mischief, which is so much fun. Um, and yeah, my contact details are on there as well. And um, great. And then you can find uh, myself on LinkedIn as well, Duncan Pryor, and you can catch up on all our episodes on our website or by searching for the Making Things Work podcast on the uh, usual channels. So I just want to say thanks very much again, Deborah, for joining us today. It's been a really, really interesting discussion. Thanks again for the recommendation of the age of surveillance capitalism, which has been a bit of a game changer for me. And good luck for yourself and your book in the future. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And I hope it's been helpful to the listeners. Um, I'm happy to unpack anything for you at any time. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you.